God's authority extends only over that which is His, but everything is His. The church is His in a redemptive sense, but everything else is His because He made it. It's a matter of corruption. They don't want it to be true because God is going to get in the way of what they want to do. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. They want to be God of their own lives. Brother, we've got a nation that's that's standing on sinking sand, brother, and it's evident all about us. But the good news is there's still a solid rock. His name is Jesus Christ. All those crazy things that our ancestors used to serve, and now in general in the West, we've, we've served the living God. But if you go to other nations, they're still serving false gods, and the gospel will go to them, and Jesus will conquer those gods and bring the nations back under his authority. Uh, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3. Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. Today on episode 44, we have Jay Warner Wallace. He's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, popular national speaker, and best-selling author. He continues to consult on cold case investigations while serving as a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology and Southern Evangelical Seminary and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. Jay Warner became a Christ follower at the age of 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skill set as a detective. He eventually earned his master's degree in theological studies from Gateway Seminary. Jim, welcome to Master's Crib. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're talking about the most important stuff we can talk about, so I'm glad to do it. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to be tearing into Luke 24, 1 through 12 for just a few minutes. So I just like to read that. I'm going to read it from the NASB. So it says this, um, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling them these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So, looking at all this, Mr. Wallace, we know that the resurrection is the ultimate evidence of authority over death. So what clues do we have here that would help our listeners make 
a reasonable defense for the case of the resurrection? Well, let's just take a look, stay right in that passage from 24, verse 1 through 12, um, because that's a great a great place to stop. And, and, you know, you've got a claim here on, on, on the, in the manuscript and early manuscripts, I would argue um, that is uh, making a claim about um, the resurrection, about Jesus rising from the grave. So why should we trust it? Why should we believe it at all? I think there are some things we can look at right away. If you're look, talking about Luke's gospel, remember that in the first chapter of Luke's gospel, he says that he is not an eyewitness of these things himself. He was an eyewitness with Paul in the book of Acts. He wrote two books in the New Testament, both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And these are, at one point were bound together. As a matter of fact, these two books are really long. They're about as long as you can write and maintain them on one scroll. So each book is about the same, covers about the same amount of time, 33 uh, years covered in, in uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, 33 years covered in the book of Acts. And so Luke writes down all the stuff in the book of Acts. Uh, he actually slips into first person on several occasions because he was there with Paul, uh, but he was not there to see Jesus himself. But because he was there with that first generation of eyewitnesses, um, he knew Peter, he knew Paul, he knew James, the brother of Jesus. These are the three most important leaders in the early church. Um, Luke had access to eyewitnesses, and he tells us that in the first chapter. He says, I'm writing to Theophilus. He says that I am writing uh, what he learned from the uh, eyewitnesses and servants of the word uh, of Jesus. So, so we have a claim here that's being made by somebody who's saying that uh, he got this information from people who actually saw it themselves. So he's like, an, he's, like, he's like a historian who has access to the first generation witnesses. What a, that's a great place to be if you're an historian. But the question is, why do we trust any of these, um, any of this information in these 12 verses? Well, a couple of things are, are, I think are important to recognize right off the bat. Look who the first witnesses are. They are Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other disciples, right? Apostles, right? No, other women with them. So, so the first viewers of the risen Christ, if this is a lie, are the people that the first century readers would be the least likely to trust, women. Hmm. Uh, if you're going to have, this is a lie, and, and, and somebody saw Jesus in the, in the, you know, the tomb of uh, garden, um, well, I, I would probably want to make it be Peter or, or maybe even Nicodemus, somebody who's got juice, right? Somebody who's got actual um, position and authority uh, in the, for the first readers who are going to read about this. Instead, they, they pick people that would be the least likely um, to be uh, received without question. Not that, not that, not that women were, were, you know, distrusted because they were often used in, in, in trials or in, uh, uh, like council proceedings and things like that. But typically they, they would want somebody to verify what the woman was saying. Just, this is just the nature, unfortunately, of what it was like in the first century, uh, in that region. So, so it seems to me, if you're going to, this is a lie, I would pick uh, different people to, to tell, to, to position as the first viewers, right? Also, the question becomes, well, look, if it's really easy to lie about Jesus if you do it um, really late in history. Wait till everyone knows the truth is dead. Then you can say whatever you want about Jesus. So the first question I would have is, is this, doc, is this document from Luke early enough to ha actually chronicle people who were still alive to see this and early enough so that if somebody was listening to this or reading this, um, they would know if it happened or not. I said, look, if you wait till two, uh, wait a century and then you write this thing, well, there's no one alive who can say, hey, that didn't happen like that. I was there. It wasn't like that. But if you write this within the lifetime of people who are still were there, you, you're running a risk that is going to be discovered. 
your lie will be discovered. So, so for me, one of the first things I needed to do, I, I was not a believer until I was about 35. And I use this to process that I use in cold cases to examine the New Testament gospels. And one of the first questions we ask when testing an eyewitness is, was that guy or gal really there to see what it is they said they saw? So I needed to know how early is this? Let me just give you a, a way to kind of um, using, remember, this is Luke's gospel. So Luke wrote the book of Acts, and it turns out he wrote the book of Acts uh, second. His first writing is the gospel of Luke. He says that uh, in the first chapter of Acts. He says that his first uh, book is the, the gospel. So, so we know that one comes before the other. Now, we can actually date the book of Acts from some internal evidence. And here's what I mean. Nowhere in the book of Acts does Luke ever discuss the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And you would think he would mention this because it was a horrific historical event in a region that he is chronicling in the book of Acts. Number two, he says in his gospel that Jesus is going to predict the destruction of the temple. So wouldn't you think he would want to indicate how the prediction came true? It would kind of validate Jesus. Also, Paul's alive at the end of the book of Acts. By the way, the temple was destroyed in 70. So, so that's missing. And the death of Paul around 64 to 66, that's also missing. And the death of Peter around the same time, that's also missing. And the death of James, the brother of Jesus in 61, that's missing. And Barnabas, who dies in 61, that's missing too. Why wouldn't Luke tell you how these important characters from his, his uh, um, uh, writing in the book of Acts, why wouldn't he tell you how these people died? Especially when he seems to be willing to talk about the deaths of the disciples. He talks about the death of James, the brother of John. That happens in 44. I don't know why anybody would care about what happened to James, the brother of John. Why won't you tell me what happened to James, the brother of Jesus, who was leading the church in Jerusalem? Why would you leave that out? Well, one reason, well, I think one good explanation for why you might leave out the destruction of the temple, other historical events like the siege of Jerusalem in 69, that's missing. You might leave out the death of Paul and Peter in 64, 65, the death of James, the brother of Jesus in 61, Barnabas in 61, is if these things haven't happened yet. Mm. So uh, one good reasonable inference from what's missing historically in the book of Acts is simply that um, it hasn't happened yet. And that means I'm going to conservatively place the writing of the book of Acts at 60 AD. Now, you know that you've got um, the book of uh, Luke written prior to 60 because he says he wrote that book prior to the book of Acts. So how early did he write it? Well, there's good internal evidence in scripture to demonstrate that he wrote this pretty early too, because in a letter to first to, called First Timothy to the to, to to Paul's assistant Timothy, he quotes from the Gospel of Luke and <laughs> calls it scripture. So that's got to be pretty early for him to quote it and call it scripture. And so when he writes to the Corinthians in First Corinthians, he he talks about how to um, do the Lord's Supper, and he pulls from the passage in Luke in order to describe how to do it. Wow. And, and he's writing that to the Corinthian church in the early 50s. So this gospel is actually written early enough to have been written in the lifetime of people who would still be alive to, to know if it was a lie. And that's one of the things we're looking for to determine, um, is the gospel reliable? You know, is there some, and, and in the end, I'll just put, put it this way. I get it that, that for a lot of people, the idea that there could be any historical record of something supernatural, that would, for a lot of people, disqualify it because they would say, no, no, I don't believe in the supernatural. But in other words, for all the people who are skeptical about the Bible, 
Oh, it's been written, it's written late and translated hundreds of times. You can't trust it. Oh, there was never really a real Jesus. There was just this caricature of somebody, you know. Okay. If there were no miracles in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, for example, do you think anyone would distrust what it says about some ancient sage who just preached good messages in the first century? No, as a matter of fact, they would say that that ancient sage is the best documented ancient sage of all ancient sages. They would love the document evidence we have, yet they don't love it because it contains miraculous events. That demonstrates to me that it's not really a a, a matter of distrusting the manuscript evidence, how many manuscripts we have, how much they match, all of that. It's really more about a presuppositional bias against the supernatural that, for the most part, lies behind a lot of, of um, distrust. So let me just stretch it a little bit further. I overcame that as I was examining the Gospels, because I, there's four ways to measure eyewitnesses. I talk about this in a book I wrote called Cold Case Christianity, but without going into all of that, you know, it's a, I, could, I teach a class for it takes me 18 hours to teach this at Biola, so I'm not going to be able to get into all that detail, but I will say this. If, if I, I, I knew that I had a bias, personally, against any explanation for facts or any um, um, data related to history if it included a supernatural event. Because I was just who I was as an atheist, and I was 35, and I wasn't going to bend my knee on that. But I realized at some point that even as an atheist, I already believed in something very powerful that was extra natural outside of nature. Here's why I say that. I believed in what is known as Big Bang cosmology, the idea that the universe is finite. It's not infinitely old. It actually came into existence. That's called the standard cosmological model amongst physicists, amongst astrophysicists and cosmologists. It is the by far most accepted model of the universe, given the physical evidence in the universe that it had a beginning and that all space, time, and matter came into existence at the beginning of the universe. Now, the question becomes then, what is the, if, if, if something has a beginning, it needs to have a, a cause. Uh, if something begins to exist, it must have a cause that caused it to begin to exist. This is called the law of causality, kind of hard to get around that. So the question becomes, what could cause all space, time, and matter to come into existence? If you said, oh, uh, it could be like some kind of quantum environment with uh, energy popping in it. Okay, well, a quantum environment would have to be a void of some type. Uh, uh, that's something. That's not nothing. We're saying there's no space before space. There's no spatial void before the spatial void we call the universe. There is no space before space. We are looking for a cause by definition, according to the science that lies outside of space, time, and matter. Now, think about that for a second. An all-powerful cause of the universe that is not spatial, temporal, or material. And that means it can't be caused or impacted or controlled by physics or chemistry because it's not physical. Now, now think about that for a minute. If there is a cause outside of the universe that is powerful enough to cause the universe, and that cause just happens to be a being, well, then I think that the most dramatic miracle on the pages of Scripture is not even in the New Testament. It's Genesis 1. And any of these small potato miracles that Jesus performs, if he is the God of the universe who had the power to blink everything into existence, this is what it says in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. This is, this is, this is the kind of being that these are all small potato miracles. 
I mean, why, why would you believe that all the universe came into existence from nothing, yet resist any supernatural description of Jesus? It makes no sense. Oh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's crazy. That is crazy. So uh, go, going right along with that, then, uh, that kind of flies in the face of a lot of you know what's even being taught to children in schools today. So we can't believe in the miracles of Christ, but we can believe in the miracle that nothing caused everything is what you're saying, right? Amen. That's right. That's right. That's the inconsistency. Not only that, if we are in an entirely physical universe, think about that for a second. We're just in a universe that is space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. That's, that's the entire, everything that's in that soup called the universe. Those are the ingredients. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if that's the case, then you don't even, you couldn't be taught anything. Because it, what would be lacking would be free agency. In other words, this, this is a tough one, but get, hang with me for a second. If, if, if all we have are physical events and things in the universe, then even your thoughts are not freely yours. They're just the result of a physical event in your brain, a neuron firing that was caused by another physical event, which, and you had no control over those events. This is the position, by the way of Sam Harris, who's got a degree in neuroscience. He's a philosopher. He's written against Christianity quite extensively, but he holds to this position that you don't actually have free will. Mm. In other words, in a physical universe, you suffers from something called physicalism or determinism, that all they are are dominoes that fall, causing another dominoes to fall. And there's no, dominoes can't decide not to fall. They just fall when they're falling, when, they're fall, when something falls against them. So they don't make choices. And so if we are in a purely physical universe, as atheists would like us to believe, now what's lacking, if you have no free agency, is rationality, because rationality requires me to freely choose between two things that are being proposed to me. If I am not free to choose between options, even rational options, I can't be rational. I also cannot love, because love requires the freedom to decide not to love somebody. You can't be creative because you can't create without this kind of proof. You can't be held accountable if you had no choice in the matter. You see, the kind of universe that physicalism describes is not at all consistent with the kind of universe that we experience. That's why I think it's so amazing about scripture is that it describes the world the way it really is. And it's going to be up to us, I think, as the parents of young people to help them to see, you know, that, that, that we, unfortunately, we can't allow um, our churches to do all the heavy lifting and the spiritual discipleship of our kids. And I think most people would say they know that. They know I can't, you know, I've got a great youth pastor, they might say I've got a great youth group. I love it. But I mean, ideally, that is supplementing the teaching that you are doing at home. I get it, though. A lot of us are like, oh, if I've got a good youth pastor and a good youth group, I don't even need to bring this up. They're taking care of it. But reality of it is, is that we have to be involved as parents. This is also true in the education of our kids. If nothing else, we have to know what it is they're learning and show them why a lot of this is nonsensical If once you start to think about it. Yeah. Wow. So now just chasing that out a little bit. So with a lot of the people that we are talking to today, I mean, a, a lot of our friends, they simply do believe in the Big Bang. They simply do believe that we are nothing more than, you know, bags of chemicals bouncing into each other. But if that's true and that's consistent, uh, you know, all throughout their, their thinking, then how is it that if, I mean, someone murders someone and that was not their choice, 
how can a person who is an atheist expect that person to be able to be held accountable for something that they had no free will to do to begin with? Yeah, exactly. We have facilities all around the country that are penal facilities. They are, they are penitentiaries, county prisons, and often they are uh, run by something called the Department of Corrections. <laughs> now think about that word, corrections. That implies that at some point you could be corrected. In other words, that you would say, oh, yeah, I've changed my mind on that. Mm. Well, really? Well, if I'm just a brain, I don't have a mind and everything in my brain is being caused physically by neurons and, and different uh, functions of my brain that are, are can be reduced to just a series of, of physical dominoes, then how could I ever really change my mind? Is this kind of thinking to determinism really suggests that where you are today, what you're thinking, the fact that you chose to listen to this podcast was predetermined physically at the beginning of the universe. Mm that you didn't have a choice here, that you just got to this place because this is how the dominoes happen to fall. But so we can't, we got to stop calling these facilities correctional facilities and corrections officers if there is no opportunity to correct yourself, to change your mind, to be restored, to be rehabilitated. Because under that view, you weren't really, you didn't change your mind and embrace a new way. You were just determined from, from that was just going to happen anyway. And nothing you, you, nothing you have achieved. It would, none of us could actually be uh, condemned or, or can be held accountable, but worse yet, you could never be praised because mm -hmm. nothing you do that you think is praiseworthy really was something you did by, by choice. You, it, was, it, it was predetermined genetically that you would do this kind of thing and predetermined by the laws of physics. And if that's the case, then, then we've got to, again, it doesn't comport with how the world really is. Right, Look, right. if you're going to say, I know that I have my own thoughts, my own mind, and I appear in my mind, I'm making these choices freely. I decide what it is I want to think about. And if I'm thinking about something I shouldn't be thinking about, I can stop it and say, no, no, get your act together. You're not going to be thinking about those things. And I make a correction. So I experience free agency all the time. I have firsthand evidence of my own free agency. I, have, I experience it. If you're going to suggest that I don't have free agency, well, then, wow, your evidence that free agency doesn't exist has to be even has to be much better than my firsthand experience that it does. And I'm sorry, the arguments against it don't, don't even get close to the evidence of my firsthand experience. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, can we take a couple minutes, Jim, and just uh, I, I play devil's advocate and I throw sure. some of these arguments at you that... Uh, that we might be running into and, uh, and you kind of demonstrate to us a little bit how we can, how we can stand up to some of this stuff. Well, I'll give it a shot. We'll see how, how well it goes. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So, so here we go. So yes, you believe in uh, morality coming from the Bible and you say that it's objective, but within the pages of scripture, we see God doing an awful lot of things that we don't consider moral. So how do you explain that? Okay, well, first of all, you always want to ask people, and then of course they can find, you and I can both find areas of the Bible where if we're not careful readers, if we're not taking it in context, that you would say, oh, it seems like God is acting evilly there. So mm -hmm. I would always want to ask the question, okay, so what do you mean by God acting evilly? Like, what? give me an example from scripture where you would say, because we'll just take those one at a time, rather than this general, I want, I'm not, I'm not that I don't want to concede something like this is a debate and an argument and I'm trying to move tactically. No, I'm just actually not willing to concede the overall claim that there are many places in the Bible where God seems according to, of course, you just said, according to us, right? I mean, there are many times when my kids growing up thought that my decisions were uh, excessive and painful. Like they didn't, they didn't understand why, why I would make that decision. 
uh, sometimes I was harsh, right? It came down a little harder than they would have liked. But, but of course, we know as parents that we're a little bit further along in that, in that, that, that experience, uh, you know, um, our experience of how old we are, what we've, what we've seen and what we've done. And so we know that sometimes we're going to have to help our kids because they haven't gotten to where we are yet. We, we have a better sense of reasoning given the world the way it really is. Well, gosh, if there's a really a God, then that God's got a far better sense of understanding and reasoning than we do. And mm-hmm. so we have to, at some point, again, when you say, well, according to us, right, we, we think that that is harsh, or we think that God would be evil to do that. But so the first thing I would, I would ask is, like, well, give me a, a specific so we can address the specific. And then number two, why, why are you comparing our sense of reasoning with the perfect God, right? Oh, so, no. so, so, so the first thing I would, I would simply ask is, give me an example of where it is you think that God is acting in a way that you find morally repugnant. Mm. And let's see what they well, say. Yeah, that's all right. So let's let's just toss toss one out there, and and uh, we'll we'll, we'll kind of we'll end after this. But uh, they just say um, the fact that uh, you know most Christians are pro life, but in the flood, it didn't seem like God was very pro life. Okay, so remember that the that the way when you say life, that's the key word. And I would always say, what do you mean by life? Because I think what we do is we, 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 uh, we would call ourselves Christians, but we typically hold an atheistic worldview when it comes to things like life. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about life in terms of like abortion or pro-life or pro-choice. I'm talking about, according to the New Testament, we are, our lives are eternal. We are not line segments, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, that you have a point called birth and a line segment goes for a straight line for a certain distance, then it hits an uh, end point. And so the line between the two points is called a line segment, a a line without dots that goes off in each direction. is called a line, but the line segment starts at a point and ends at a point. We kind of see our lives that way. 90 years, 95 years. You hope to get that line segment to segment, right? The dot to dot. You hope that's as far apart as it can be. But that's not the way that the scripture describes us. We are rays, according to scripture. Our ray starts at a point and goes through a second point, and then it continues off infinitely past the second point. So, so we, we are rays, according to scripture. So we, we might live 90 years between the two dots, but then it goes off. And by the way, so that means whatever bad happens to you in those 90 years, a thousand years into eternity, because you're a ray, you're not a line segment, a thousand years into eternity, you've suffered 90 for a thousand you've been, you've been given. But if you're a million years into eternity, well, now you've only had to suffer 90 for the, for the million. And when you're 20 million years into, you get the point, the longer you are spending eternity with God, the smaller and smaller is the percentage of your mortal life. Mm. Now, because God knows that, it's different to say, well, God's going to annihilate me altogether. Then God is going to end my temporal existence, right? Because mm. that's truly, by definition, what we're seeing happening with God. God is going to take some people off the planet. Now, where they end up, that's another issue, right? We know that's an issue in Christianity. We talk about that all the time. But the idea that we are, because it kind of sounds like God's killing people, like God is finally is, is, um, is completely obliterating people, that he is destroying them. But that's not the way our lives are described in scripture. Mm. It turns out if scripture is true, none of us. Now, there are people within Christianity who are called annihilationists who believe that, that souls that will not be brought to heaven will ultimately be annihilated. Okay. I don't hold that view. 
Um, so from my, from the view, I think from scripture, it supports the best, although I think it's a non-essential, but the point I'm trying to make is if I'm right about this, every one of us is an eternal creature. Mm. So when we say that God ends something, and this is what gets me. So how many times have you heard somebody say this, this thing that's happening over here is so evil. If there was a God, he would stop it. And then we have examples in scripture of God stopping evil. And now we're shaking our fist at God. Well, you can't have it both ways. Right, right. You know, if you're going to have child uh, sacrifices for 400 years and that's evil, then when God finally ends it and, and takes out a people group, you can't complain because that's what you were arguing for. Where is God in the midst of this evil? Well, then when God acts, you can't say, oh, well, you shouldn't have acted the way I wouldn't have acted that way. Well, you're not God. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, so what did you expect him to do? So, again, especially if each uh, child who t- is, dies is not, is, it, I believe, that we have a good uh, biblical mandate that a, a one-year-old who dies um, is still an eternal creature hmm. with a temporal existence and an eternal non-material existence. So what I think we, we tend, to see, tend to see to do is I, nobody wants to die. I mean, nobody wants to experience the pain of death, but nobody wants to see their mortal lives. And we kind of live like we're atheists, even though we, we will say that we believe what Christianity teaches. But this one's tougher because for the most part, we hold on to those 90 years and we want those 90 years to be really good. And, and, we, and we cry when someone dies at 40 because, oh, they were taken too soon. Like their life ended too soon. Their life didn't end mm-hmm. if the Christian worldview is true. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Well, thank you. You just gave us a, a lot right there. Just a, a lot of uh, strength to, to be able to go into some of these arguments. So I appreciate that. So if you were to give us a, a desert isle book to help us beef up on, on some apologetics, what would that book be, Jim? Oh gosh. You know, it's hard uh, because there's so much you could, you could read. If you're looking for the one thing that covers it all. I mean, I've written <laughs> books in this series, of course, I've got three books on apologetics. And you can find that on our website at coldcasechristianity.com. But I know that for a lot of people um, are, are, are kind of wired differently. There's other great books out there. You know, the, the classic uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict has been a great book. It's been updated now a couple of years ago. It's, it's excellent. Uh, my friend uh, Frank Turek's got a book that called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Our books are Cold Case Christianity, um, God's Crime Scene, and Forensic Faith. Uh, but you know anything from Norm Geisler, anything from my friend Lee Strobel? Oh my gosh, case for Christ, case for faith, case for you name it. He's got a case for it. Um, I think he, I was included in the case for miracles. So I, I think that um, there's lots of good material out there. We are right now in uh, well, we have been for probably 15 years in a renaissance of Christian apologetics that really came in response to some of the stuff that was being written against us in a culture that's more and more skeptical. So it's not as though, and here's what I would say to all of you who are listening, you know, it's, it's t- books are, are sometimes a big, big purchase. Start with what you can get for free on our websites where we deliver it in 400 word, you know, blogs or, or seven minute videos, you know, you can get a lot of stuff. And then if you want a deep dive so you can teach it to your kids, well, that's when you want to get books that can help you to have to do the underlining, stick it on the shelf, be able to return to it quickly those things are probably more helpful, but I would probably start with our websites. That's probably the best way to go. Great. So can you just uh, give us your website one more time? And also if uh, anybody wants to be able to get a hold of you, perhaps they have a question you might answer for them. Yeah, for sure. So my website is at coldcasechristianity.com and our kids Academy, where we're training eight to 13 year olds is at casemakersacademy.com. Now to reach me, the best way to ask a question, because I, I handle these every morning, 
is that I've got a phone app that's available on Android and on uh, iPhone. It's just called the Cold Case Christianity phone app. And there's a chat room there. And so right now, that's the only really public chat room. I'm on all the social media platforms too, but that's so great. Because I look at that every day and people post um, questions every day. And I answer them before I do anything else on, on in the morning. So that's a great place to ask questions. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. I will be praying for you and for your family and just want to thank you one more time for coming on Master's Crib. Hey, thanks, Brad. I really appreciate you having me on.